Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. After the reading, I'm going to open, open it up for some testimony. So we have a smaller group today, so we can be a little bit more personable. Romans chapter 9, 1 through 6. You can see a huge transition in the book of Romans in this verse. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For not all Israel who are of Israel. You may be seated. So, um, you know, the Bible tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I'm not bragging on all the people that aren't here today. <laughs> it's a long weekend, so people are taking advantage of that. I understand that. But the reason we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, is that we are to exhort one another daily. And so much more as we see the day approaching. And you have to be totally blind not to see the day approaching. Um, I remember it was about two weeks ago on a Wednesday night, Keith shared something to me about Target's new advertising position. And I was in disbelief. And not that I thought Keith was pulling my leg, but I just... It was just too much for me to even fathom that that could be true in America. And now, as the news is coming out, um, and we need to pray that that God will send national repentance to our country. But God's doing some good things, and he's doing things in individuals' lives. And he does it through our corporate gathering together. And I know you, we haven't been here long this morning, but God is here in our midst. Jesus is here. Um, our men's Bible study was kind of small yesterday as well. And before Jose showed up, it was Jordan and I, and then Brian came in. And for about the first 15 minutes, though, Jordan and I looked at each other and said, you know what, Jesus is here. doesn't matter if we got a room full of men. The same object of our study and our worship is here. And um, Rick said something during Sunday school that really God used to convict me. It wasn't his lesson, but he just shared a personal testimony this weekend being up in Bear Lake and being accosted by two neighbors, <laughs> ladies, that really wanted to take him to task because he dared question a boundary dispute. Ben knows what that's like. <laughs> and how we can test you when you're on your own property and people are saying, what are you doing on my property? And they want to, and, and even saying, you know, what are you, what's this concern of yours? You're, 
you're not one of us. You're not, you're not a neighbor here. And Rick says, I actually own this property. Um, and instead of getting in his flesh, he kept remembering we're to be peacemakers. And the way he handled that situation completely reversed it into a real ugly argument, into an opportunity to really soften people's heart through a kind word. Grievous words stirreth up anger, but a soft answer turns away wrath. And and uh, and his, that wasn't his lesson, but it just just reminded me of how how quick I am to get into my flesh, and how I can get argumentative. And boy, if we don't stay prayed up and having our armor on, our flesh and the enemy can. And and so God, thank you, Rick, for just being sensitive and speaking your heart and sharing a testimony because it. it um, it was a blessing. Somebody else, maybe something this morning already, maybe a song. Um, i got to tell you, uh, Tim, just seeing you um, come in with your, your children today, just that alone, I just, what a testimony. And I praise God uh, for you being here, and, and thank you just, just for the encouragement that I received just through that. Um, anything else that somebody, just maybe something this morning, a song, Somebody you shook hands with? The Lord is here. Yes, Lily. Yeah. reminder of why we are here. We're here to worship. We're here to bow down. Give glory to our God. Anything else? Maybe maybe from the picnic. Grown boys. Darren. fun watching people. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> you notice I kind of backed out gradually, though. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a good time. Anybody else just something to share, something that the Lord's done this weekend? Maybe it doesn't have to be in this service or yesterday at the picnic, but maybe even this week. Yes. Yes. Amen. His power, his majesty, yeah. And his, 
behind the power has got to be more powerful than what we see. Praise the Lord. All right, so this morning, um, I'm not going to actually be doing an expository teaching from Romans 9, 1 through 6. It's going to be more of a background because this is an abrupt change in the book of Romans. And so we need to address that. What brought Paul to this point in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to address the nation of Israel? So God had an election of his people. They are the chosen people of God. And they were chosen unconditionally. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that there was nothing special about the nation of Israel that God would delight to choose that nation. They weren't more numerous. They weren't wiser. They weren't better than any other nation. God, unconditionally of his own sovereign choice, wanted Israel to be his special nation, a treasure, a peculiar people above all the people on the earth. With that said... I do want to remind us that when God chooses a nation or chooses individuals for service, it is for the purpose of others, a broadening circle, to hear about the one true God. Jesus chose 12 men specifically. In John chapter 15 and verse 16, Jesus said to them, You have not chosen me. I have chosen you, and I have appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So Jesus purposely, of his own sovereign will, chose 12 men, but it wasn't to the exclusion of other Israelites. It was so that their fruit would remain, that they would bear fruit and bring many people to the Messiah. So with that in mind, the Israelites, thinking that they were exclusively the people of God, they had lost sight of the reality that God had chosen them, not to the exclusion of other nations, but for the inclusion of all people. And this is what Paul is addressing in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The Gentiles now are coming to faith. And by comparison, the majority of the Jewish people are failing to recognize their own Messiah. That's confusing. And it had to be very confusing for the first century Jew. They were God's covenant people. Promises had been made to them. We see that in Paul's broken prayer for them. He says, according to the flesh, they pertain the adoption. God adopted them as his own special nation. God revealed his glory to them on Mount Sinai. God had made covenants, special agreements with this people. He gave them the law. He gave them the service of God. He gave them the promises of of a Messianic kingdom and that they would have the land that was endowed to them for whom them were the fathers and of whom Christ came. So they were to be stewards of two things, 
the message of God and the Messiah of God. That's what Israel was entrusted with. So to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11, we need to understand contextually three broad circles and then ever-narrowing circles in the Bible. When you study the Bible, this is called the synthesis principle, where you synthesize the big picture, the book, the paragraph within the book, and then the particular sentence. When we fail to do that, often we come up with erroneous interpretations. And so let's just start by looking at the big picture of the nation of Israel. Then we're going to draw that circle closer, and we're going to look at Israel during the reign, or not the reign, but during the coming of their Messiah, the first advent, and how the Gospels depict Israel during that period. And then we'll look at the book of Romans and the Jew and Gentile controversy within the book of Romans, because it's very, very evident. But if you don't look for it, you're liable to miss it. And you will think that Romans 9 is just his first addressing, addressing of this confusion and this controversy between the Jew and the Gentile. But actually, it's from very uh, chapter 1 all the way up until this point. So it's not as drastic as we might think. And then we will look at how Romans 9 through 11 harmonize with God's sovereign right to harden whoever he wants to harden. God has the right to do that as creator God. But God does not harden people arbitrarily. That's something I think that most Bible expositors and teachers just goes over their head. They don't understand that God's hardening is a judicial act. It is a decision whereby God purposely blinds and hides truth from those who have rejected. So, hardening is God's choice, but it's not an arbitrary choice. He will have mercy on whom he has chooses to have mercy. And God shows us who he chooses to have mercy on in the book of Romans and throughout the Bible. But Romans 9, 10, and 11 harmonizes all these things. It shows us that God, even with faithless people, like the nation of Israel that was faithless, yet God was still faithful to his covenant promises to Israel. God has, at the end of this section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, he makes this really profound statement that helps us see the picture of Romans 9, 10, 11, what all is going on. God has committed all to disobedience, Jew and Gentile. Well, why has God done that? Here's the purpose clause, that he might have mercy on all. All. Every individual. So that's the reason God has committed us all to disobedience. He has shown us through the law that everyone's disobedience. He has shown every Gentile through his conscience that he is disobedient. Why? In order that God might have mercy on who? On all humanity. So let's look at Israel's role in the Old Testament. 
So the first place we need to look is Genesis chapter 12. So let's just quickly turn over there. I'm going to try to stay right on my notes today because I've got a lot of notes. And this really is a lifetime study for me that began almost 15 years ago. And so I've tried to pull all of my notes and all of my study together in one sermon, which could be dangerous. But let's just look at Genesis 12, 2 and 3. God's covenant with Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will. It's a promise. And I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Genesis 22, God uses the phrase, and in your seed, singular, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians says, and that seed is Christ, in your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So what was God's role for Israel in the Old Testament? The first thing we see is that they were to be a medium or a channel of great blessing. They were the object of blessing. God was going to bless them. He was going to enrich Abraham's life. The purpose was that they might be a channel through which God would work to bless all nations, not to the exclusion of other nations. The biblical principle, to whom much is given, of him much will be required, and to whom much is committed, of him they will ask the more, Luke twelve forty eight was worked out through the nation of Israel. They were given tremendous responsibility through this incredible privilege. So we see a principle of responsibility along with the privilege. They were to be messengers of grace. Abraham, you freely receive these things. Now, Abraham, you are to freely give and be a blessing. That principle is found in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8 when Jesus selected the 12. He blessed them. He brought them into his inner circle, and he said, you have freely receive this. Now you go and freely give. The second reason for Israel, or the second role that Israel had, is they were to accentuate the one true God. They were to contrast all other deities in comparison to the God of Israel. That was their second role. So let's flip over to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, 3 through 5. I'll read all these passages and then come back and make some comments. Exodus 7, 3 through 5. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is what God is promising to do. And I will multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, here's the purpose, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. How? By great judgments 
and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Let's turn over to chapter 9 in the same book, Exodus 9 and verse 16. But indeed, speaking to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Notice that. That's why he raised Pharaoh up. That's why he hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that his name might be known or declared in all the earth. That's what God is doing through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. One more passage in the book of Exodus. Exodus 12, 12. So my main heading here is that God is accentuating the one true God through the nation of Israel. 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on this night, and I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and this is an important understanding of the Exodus. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. You see, God is not just precarious here. He's not just hardening Pharaoh's heart arbitrarily. He has a purpose and a design behind all of this. So let's just make several comments. God judicially hardens. God does it in judgment in order to keep his covenant promise with Israel. They had been brought into Egypt. They had been under slavery. And they were beaten. They were abused. Their afflictions were great. And God had promised Abraham what? I will curse those who curse you. Through this, Israel recognized that God's covenant faithfulness is real. That God is a God that keeps his promises. Secondly, what was there to harden in Pharaoh except for his own rebellious self-will? You see, he wasn't hardened from birth. Therefore, God wouldn't have had to harden him. So the fact that God hardened him shows and proves that he had a self-will that was already hardened. And God judicially hardens his heart. This was to, de to demonstrate to those who resist God that God resists the proud. This is a principle all through the Bible. But God gives grace to the humble. And so what are we told to do? We are told to humble ourselves under God. James 4, 7 and 10. Israel was to display God's judgment on those who oppose him. God's wrath is on those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against those who know God and yet glorify Him not as God. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against those who have the truth and exchange the truth for a lie. Romans 1.18, Romans 1.22, and Romans 1.24. This is what God is doing here. Judicial hardening has a salvific or a greater redemptive purpose. This is why God did this. It had a redemptive purpose to speak the message and the Messiah 
to all the her earth that they might know the one true God. Israel was used to bring judgment on the false gods and to show that there was only one true sovereign in heaven who does whatever he chooses to do. The Egyptians, many of them, converted to worship the one true God as a result of all the plagues. We are told in Exodus 12, 38, that a multitude, a mixed multitude, so you can see God's salvific purpose in this. And when you get to the book of Joshua, they had heard of the one true God. And the entire city of Gibeon converted to worship the one true God. This is God's plan for Israel. So the first role was to be a medium of blessing. The second role of Israel was to accept the third role of Egypt, of Egypt, the third role for Israel was to show the moral integrity and righteousness of the world. So turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll look at the giving of the law and its purpose to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you are going to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. Why? For this is your wisdom. What was their wisdom? It was the laws and the statutes of God. That was their wisdom. That's why they were to observe it. Carefully, Shamar, the Hebrew word, means to guard, to protect, to live it out with meticulous observation because that was their wisdom. That was their understanding. Where? In the sight of the peoples who will hear of the statutes and say, surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. Can you For what great nation is there a God who is so near as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in this law which I set before you this day? So a third purpose for Israel, the first one, they were a medium of blessing. Second one, they accentuated the one true God. Third reason, they were a light and a moral compass to all the nations around them. Other nations would hear of these laws and they would realize how wise and just the one true God was. What a discerning God he was. Their greatness. God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. We think of that sometimes, that Israel was supposed to be this mighty conquering people. Their greatness was in relation to to their knowledge of God. That was their greatness. And by the time that Christ came, they had completely forgotten that. And we're going to see that as we go through Jesus and his action with the Israelite people. Faithfulness to God's law, a testimony to God's intimacy. What other God is so near and so close as the Israeli God? 
They were to demonstrate the righteous, the equitable, the impartiality of the one true God. The last thing that I want to mention, we're not going to turn to any scriptures, I'll just sort of mention them, but they were to be an example of God's faithfulness to his covenant, even when God's people are faithless. God's purpose in election does not fail. When God chose the nation, his plans would not fail. And that's, my friend, really the question that is being answered in Romans chapter 9. Has God's promises, has God's covenant for the elect nation of Israel, have they failed somehow? That's what's being addressed. And so this is a picture of what God did in the Old Testament. Seventy years of captivity because they had continually failed and rebelled. Those 70 years represented 490 years. And every seventh year, there was to be a sabbatical rest for the land. God says, I'm going to make it up in one go-round. Seventy years, this land's going to lay for, uh, uh, um, infertile and, and fallow. That was um, prophesied in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. And in Second Chronicles 36 21, you can just write those down if you'd like to. That's where he says, I'm going to give the land its Sabbath rest. While in Babylon, the one true God displays himself to the greatest empire that the earth had known at that time. The Babylonians, they spanned all the way from India through North Africa. And from uh, the Euphrates and the Tigris River. They were an immense controlling people. About uh, seven-eighths of the world's population was within their territory. Not, not quite that much, I'm sorry. About five-sixths of the population. So what was God doing while they were in Babylon? God was taking a remnant who were chosen by him to go into this land to display to the Babylonians and to all other nations that there's only one true God. Three boys thrown into the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And after that event, Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 29 that no one was to speak anything amiss against the one true God. In Daniel chapter 4, Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar to repent of your pride and your arrogance. He's up on his rooftop, and he says, look what I have done. For seven years, he loses his sanity. He's out eating ox, eating grass like an ox, eating ox meat. No, he's eating grass. His hair's grown long. So what did he do when he realized and comes to his senses? He proclaims that there is only one true God whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And he decrees this through his entire nation. So God repeatedly, I can give you other examples. Cyrus, the great Persian empire, gives a decree for Israel to go back and rebuild its temple. And he recognizes that the true God of heaven has set him up to be king. Nehemiah comes back and rebuilds the wall in 52 days. And what did his enemies say? The enemies said, this was done by God. The whole book of Esther the word Yahweh or Elohim is not mentioned one time. Yet in the book of Esther, you see the sovereignty of God controlling all the circumstances of her life. And we're told in Esther chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, that many of 
the people converted to Judaism due to the influence of Mordecai and Esther. So now let's move on to the New Testament. What was God doing in the New Testament with his nation of Israel? The Messiah came, and you would think Jesus was going to just make it picturely, picture crisp and clear that he was the Jewish Messiah. We're told in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. So what was Jesus doing? During the New Testament period, Jesus was judicially blinding and hardening the Jews. He did that through several means. The first thing that he did, I call it the messianic secret. Jesus wanted to conceal that he was the Messiah. He wasn't broadcasting that he was the Jewish man. He was cloaking it in ways that only those who were perceptive, only those who were truly seeking God would have got it. And many times those who were seeking God didn't even get it until after the multitudes left, and then they had to come and ask Jesus, what in the world were you talking about? So Jesus came to a hardened group of pharisaical people who were steeped in their religion, prideful about their roots in Abraham, prideful in their keeping of the law, and the 600 and some odd things that they were supposed to do, and then adding all their other man-made traditions on top of that. And so he says, he came and he, he kept his identity to only a chosen few. When they wanted to make him a king, because he'd fed the 5,000, they were only concerned with their temporal needs, they were concerned with power, and they were consumed, consumed with being under the Roman Empire. And they wanted a king to meet all of their needs. So Jesus left and went up into the mountains by himself alone. When demonic spirits proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus always silenced the demonic spirits. I'll just read to you from Mark chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever an unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. After Jesus performed miracles of healing, when he would heal an individual, he would sternly charge them not to tell anyone. The leper in Mark 1.43, the raising of Jairus' daughter, Mark 5.43, the deaf mute in Mark 7.36, a blind man in Mark 8.26. These are just a few examples where Jesus says, Don't go and tell anybody what you've experienced. So Jesus performed miracles of healing, demonic spirits. They were rebuked. When he was approached to be a king, he went up into the mountains. He's keeping this concealed. When Jesus was revealed, his messianic glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did Jesus say to his disciples when he was coming down? He says, tell no one. This is... This is just the opposite of what you would expect. What, why is Jesus doing that? We'll, we'll get into this. But when Christ asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They were so confused. They were all over the place, weren't they? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. You're another one of the prophets. But who do you say? And Peter says this, we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ. And what did Jesus immediately say after that? Tell no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And that went right over their head as well. 
So that was the first way that Jesus blinded and hardened the current Jewish population. The second way that Jesus did that was the use of parabolic language. This is why Jesus used parabolic language. Rejection of truth leads all people, but especially the Jews in the New Testament, into greater darkness. When you reject light, God only has one thing for you, and that's greater darkness. Listen to the words of John 12, 36. While they had the light, they were to walk in the light. And here's the negative reason, lest darkness overtake them. Jesus exhorted the Jews, while you have the light, believe in the light. The reason? So that you may become sons of light. In spite of doing so many miracles before them, they did not believe in him, and in judgment God hardened them. This is what it says in the the passages right after Jesus encourages them to believe. He says, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. This is what God was doing. That they should not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, and understand, and be converted, and I should heal them. The miraculous signs were performed for one purpose. And that was so that people would believe. And when people rejected the miracles, then God brought them into greater darkness. You remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? What did he do at the tomb? He prayed, and he said, Father, I want to do this in front of all these people so that they might believe that you are the one who sent me. And what happened after he did that? The Jews who disbelieved ran off and told the Pharisees, you ought to hear what this guy's doing. And so you know what they did? Rather than believing in Jesus, they wanted to kill not only Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus. We're looking at people who are self-hardened because they saw the miracles, they heard the truth, and they rejected it. So Jesus masked his truth in parabolic speaking. He kept this messianic secret. There were two reasons that Jesus gave us for doing this. He says, I want them to lift me up on the cross. I am going to blind myself from the rulers of Israel so that they will crucify me. At that time, the apostles, then you go and tell people that I am the Christ. Then you tell them about this glorious vision that you saw up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus said this in John 12, 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, then I will draw all people to myself. And this is something that I didn't understand for such a long time, that this is the context of of the Israelites in the New Testament. And it makes the Bible all fit together so perfectly. The apostles came to Jesus and they asked him the very question, why do you teach in parables? The reason Jesus taught in parables was twofold. One, to teach truth to those that Jesus had purposely and personally elected to the office and to the service of an apostle so that they might be messengers of the Messiah to the world. The second reason Jesus spoke in parables was to conceal truth from those who through consistent rejection had hardened their own hearts toward God's revelation. Listen carefully to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10 and following. His disciples came to him They said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said unto them, 
Here's the first reason. Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whoever has, to him shall be given. And he shall have an abundance. And whoever does not have, those who are rejecting truth, those who are walking away, those who rejected the miracles, from him even what he does have, I will take it away. Greater darkness. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. They weren't born in a condition of dullness. They had grown dull. And their ears have grown dull of hearing, hard of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And I would give them understanding in their heart. And then they would be converted. And I would heal them. He would have. The sending of messengers and the apostles was the third way that God hardened the Jews during the New Testament period. The parable of the laborer and the vineyard is a perfect example. We are quickly running out of time, and I've got so many more notes. So we'll just kind of go with the flow here. All right. So the parable of the landowner. We're not going to read it for the sake of time. Matthew 21, 33 through 43. But the parable really opens up our eyes to what's going on in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Jewish people. So the landowner obviously is God. The vineyard and the servants, they represent the nation of Israel. The messengers who are sent, they represent the prophets. The way that they are received represents the nation of Israel's treatment of those prophets. And then finally, a son, the only son is sent and they kill him, which is a representation of Jesus. I'm really shortening all this for the sake of time. But the landowner sends finally the son who represents Jesus Christ. He is killed, and this brings judgment on the nation of Israel. And God says this. Listen to the conclusion of this parable. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 23, 43. Does that mean that God delighted, that it brought God any joy to blind his own people, to harden their hearts so that they might reject him? Just the opposite. We see that so clear in Romans 9, don't we, through Paul's prayer. There is still hope being held out. Jesus' last words for Jerusalem were this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills her prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how often I would have gathered you. Notice he said he would have gathered them. Your children, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. This is pretty telling, isn't it? So for the sake of time and your ability to listen, I think... I will sort of conclude right here and finish up my teaching next Sunday. 
and go a little bit into Romans chapter 9. But I, I want to kind of draw this to some kind of conclusion. Now, this isn't where I was going to conclude and end. But I want us to think of what we've studied so far this morning. One, we understand that God is sovereign. That God does whatever he chooses to do. Second thing we learned this morning, that God is not arbitrary in the way that he chooses things. That God has a purpose in what he does. God hardened Pharaoh after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart five times. Then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But he did it for a salvific purpose, for a redemptive purpose so that the nations might know and hear of the one true God. God is able to give mercy to whom God will give mercy. He says that. But who does God give mercy to? Is it arbitrary again? No, it's not arbitrary. God gives mercy to those who will humble themselves. God resists the proud like Pharaoh. God gives grace into the humble. So what is our responsibility as believers? Our responsibility is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt us in due time. Another application that I think we need to walk away from today is God's spirit is always speaking. But are we listening? Jesus was always speaking. God was always speaking through his prophets. Truth comes to us, and what we do with that truth will depend on what truth God gives us in the future. Mark chapter 4 says this, Take heed what you hear. For the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you and the one who has will have an abundance. And what you do have and you don't use, even what you have will be taken from you. We need to be quick to listen to the Spirit's voice, even as believers. We never want to get to this place where we aren't on our knees acknowledging our faults, coming to people and asking for forgiveness, because when we do, Every time God convicts us of something, every time we should go and ask someone's forgiveness, and we fail to respond, you know what we are doing? We are hardening our heart. And you get to the place where you don't even see your sin anymore. You don't even see your own rebellion. You don't even see your own hardness. And that is what's happening to the nation of Israel. And Paul is so, so broken for his people. So broken that he says, I wish myself were accursed from Christ. Imagine saying that for my own kinsmen, my brethren who are Jews, who have all these wonderful privileges. And Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 says, God's promises to Israel has not failed. God will never fail in his promise. Even their blinding put Jesus on the cross. Their blinding in the Old Testament put Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. It brought them across the path of Cyrus the Persian. It brought them with Esther, who liberated the Jewish people, and many people converted. So God 
even in our faithlessness, God is faithful. It's an amazing story, isn't it, from Genesis to Revelation. Well, come back next week and hear the rest of the story. I'm not Paul Harvey, though. So um, just uh, let's, let's, let's pray right now. Father, God, so many warnings that are found in the passages that we read today and also so many great encouraging truths. Lord, I think even America right now, you're hardening hearts of those who are self-hardened, those who have rejected you so many times. You are giving them over to their own desires. But God, what you're doing for those who are seeking truth, you are making it evident that there is a righteousness and that there is an evil out there that we should shun. God, I pray for us as your people. God, keep us humble. Keep us on our knees. Holy Spirit, when you convict us and when you show us truth, God, I pray that we will apply it speedily. I ask this in Jesus' name.